0: During the long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was sending the flock of Jephro, his father in law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Emirites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring them to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us who you are and your ways. Show us who we are and call us into relationship, into connection with you through your word as we have heard. And would you bring it now for us to understand, for us to believe, to grasp, to receive it. And we ask it in Jesus' name by the power of his spirit. Amen. there are different seasons that you go through in life, both personally as well as kind of corporately. And my sense of one of the things that is true right now for us as a church is that Redeemer is going through a season where the, the hard things in our lives are, are, are more coming up to the surface. That This is a season of kind of need in terms of pastoral care that uh, maybe a bit more of of the brokenness and uh, of the hard things, the suffering in our lives is kind of coming out, like in a really good way. And one of the things is I have sat with people over these past months that has kind of pressed down upon me is that so often the question that we have in the midst of hard things in our lives One of the questions that we're asking is, does anybody see me? Does anybody see me right now where I am? I feel hurt. I feel betrayed. I feel broken. I feel like I'm needy. And I don't know, does anybody actually notice? Does anybody see what I'm going through? Because the reality is that sometimes it's not just the pain of the hardship. There's a special sting that we feel when we feel broken and isolated from other people in the midst of it. That the wound in some ways goes a little bit deeper when we feel like we're cut off. That we're here and we're hurting and nobody is paying attention. Nobody sees or if they do, they don't really see because they kind of give us, it feels like a token word and a kind of, you know, here's a band-aid instead of actually getting into it with us. And I wonder if that's part of the space that the Israelites are in, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of, uh, of being imprisoned and enslaved, and not just in some ways for a, a short season. But for years, for decades of hardship, and there's this sense of their part, does anybody see? And we're told here in verse 23 at the beginning of this, that they cry out. And it doesn't even necessarily say where they're taking that kind of pain. Like it's absent of, well, well, who are they crying out to? It doesn't say, it just says that they cry out, they groan. But notice who is listening. Look at how it carries on there in verse 23. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. They don't know necessarily what they're doing with it. They're simply overwhelmed. They're groaning. But God hears. And we're told in this passage that God hears them and God sees them. God sees them in the midst of their hardship. And and, and the author Moses brings that to bear for us by repeating the verb to see numerous times to kind of call our attention. Hey, here's something big. So look there. In verse 25, it says, So God looked on the Israelites. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And it's the passive voice that he was seen. Verse 2 then says, Moses saw the bush wasn't burning. Verse 3, Moses says, I will go over and see this strange sight. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look. And there's this intentional repetition over and over of this word. Why? Well, I think there in verse 7, when God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And the way that the grammatical construction works, the word see is actually repeated twice there. We don't bring it over into English very easily, but it's this idea. I have indeed seen, I for sure have seen, absolutely I have seen the misery of my people. God is paying attention. God is taking notice of their suffering. The issue is not whether you and I go through hard things in a fallen world, in a world that is defined now by sin, the reality is we will suffer. So the question is not whether you will suffer. The question is, will anybody see it when you do? And if they see it, who is it that sees? What kind of person is seeing so when I, was, I was talking through this sermon with my wife, Erin, and she very helpfully pointed out a couple of stories that she said, "Well, well, maybe this will help kind of illustrate it. So one morning, early, she's out, running, and kind of, you know, one of those where the sidewalk kind of, you know, is is uneven. She trips, falls, and immediately it's kind of one of those, oh, that's not good, like kind of cuts and bleeding, and right at kind of that point as she falls, there is some guy driving by in his work truck, and very kindly he stops, and he kind of is like, do you need any help? And Erin's immediately, like, she's like, my first instinct is like, I'm waving my hands. No, 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 go away. Nope, nope. And it's a sense of, well, I don't know who this person is. I, I, I don't want somebody that I don't know that I can't trust to see me. In contrast, a couple of months ago, early morning, Erin's the first one up. Nobody else is awake. She's walking down our stairs, wooden kind of stairs, socks on, no shoes, hands full with like a laptop and some books and kind of slips and falls And because of holding all this stuff, kind of immediately lands on her back, and it hurts. And she kind of yells out, and the sad thing for her is that nobody except her in our family is a light sleeper. So nobody hears her. I continue snoring away. But in that moment, you do want to call out, because the people that you think can hear, those are the people that you do want to see. You want them to see because you know them. You trust them. You know that they are for you. And so that's the question. If it says that God sees, well, what does that mean? Is God somebody that we can trust if he sees our suffering? And that's what this passage speaks into. That when we are in the midst of our pain and our hardship, God sees. So how can we know that we can trust him? And the first thing that we see about God that says, when God sees you, it's good, is that God is above us when he sees. The God who is above us looks and sees what's happening. So Moses has spent now decades outside of Egypt as an exile. And he's with his father-in-law and his father-in-law's family. And he's working with his father-in-law as a shepherd. And in this particular instance, he takes the sheep, and they go far away from Midian. Perhaps there was a sense of of looking for better pasture. And so he goes over to this region of Horeb, to this mountain. And there he sees something that he's not expecting. This kind of visual that grabs his attention. This bush that is burning, but isn't burnt up. That the flames are there, but the bush is not being consumed. And it's striking for Moses. It's also striking as we read through Exodus, because this is the first supernatural thing that has happened in this book. We're kind of following the story along, and there have been years upon years of Israel living in Egypt, and things are hard, but nothing unusual, nothing extraordinary, nothing supernatural has happened until this moment. And so Moses goes to to look at the bush, and we're told that he sees the angel of the Lord in the midst of the fire. Now, who is this kind of enigmatic figure? Is this simply an angel, one of the the spiritual messengers, beings that, that attend God and do his bidding? I think the text says that something more is happening here. That to call it the angel of the Lord is almost to say that angel, that is the Lord. For, for you English grammar nerds there, it's, it's apposition. The angel, that is the Lord. And the reason I say that is because look at the way in which we're told there's an angel of the Lord, but who is it that speaks? Verse 4, God called to him from within the bush. Verse 7, the Lord said... That there's something about this figure that he so represents the Lord that it is as if the Lord is actually here speaking. That this angel of the Lord is somehow this kind of visible manifestation of God. And he doesn't show up often. It's a fleeting thing here and in other places in the Old Testament. But it seems to be the way that that he's described here and later in Exodus, that this is genuinely, this is a true and real Visible representation of God. And so as Moses encounters God through this angel of the Lord, what is it that that he notices? We'll see with us the first characteristic. What's true of God because of the burning bush? Look at verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The first thing that Moses, is in, Moses encounters is the holiness of God. It's this idea of the otherness of God, that God is different. That to say that God is holy is to say that he is majestic, that he is sovereign, that he is God. The holiness in some ways is the godness of God, It is the very fact that he is God, that he is not created. He's not a creature. He is unlike anyone or anything else. And it's represented here by the fact that Moses is told, don't come any closer. Stay back. The godness of God would overwhelm you if you come too close. And so years later, when the prophet Isaiah sees a vision of God in the temple, he hears the angels and they call out, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty? This kind of threefold repetition is to say, this is who God is. This is fundamental to understanding that God, the Godness of God, and that it's to arouse our reverence and our awe. And because God is specially present there at the bush in this moment, it makes it holy ground, which is to say that that the Lord is intensively present. In that moment in that space. It's clear that to say that God is omnipresent means that he is present to all of his creation at all times. But but it's a difference of degree. God is not present everywhere in the same way. And there are sometimes some places where scripture talks about it as he's specially present. That this holy ground signifies that God is intensively present here in this spot, in this moment. And it's overwhelming. Moses can't even look. He's told to stay back because of the godness of God that he is presented with. And perhaps part of the surprise for us as we read this is how in the world does that help us answer our question? Like we're asking the question, well, if God sees us, how can we trust him? And we might think that the first answer would be because he's a loving God. He's a compassionate God. He has mercy on us. And that is true, and that is needed. But even before that, I think we need to hear what Moses heard and saw. The godness of God, his holiness, his otherness. Because what we need to know in the midst of our pain and our hardship is that God is there, but he is not bound by it. That God is above the circumstances that we find ourselves in. That God can be sovereign, that God can be greater than the hard things that we're going through. And so in this moment, in in the midst of slavery, in the midst of exile for Moses, what does he need to hear? He needs to hear that God is genuinely God, that God is great, that God is majestic, and that God is holy. And that is part of how you know that God can be trusted to see you. But if you just leave it at that, if you just leave that God is above us, Well, then it's easy to see that, well, maybe God's distant, God's remote, God is uninvolved. And so God takes it a step further in showing who he is. It's not just that God is above us, but he goes on to say that God is among us. Look at how God identifies himself in verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now think for a second the God of the universe, what are the ways in which he could describe himself when he encounters Moses? He could describe himself as the creator of heaven and earth. He could describe himself as the one true king. He could describe himself as the hope of the peoples. All of that would be true, but that's not where God goes. God says in a very intimate, personal way, God says, I am the God of your father. I'm the God of your ancestors, your forefathers, Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And God describes himself in a personal, relational way. The God who is above us, who is holy, is at the same time the God who is among us, who comes in relationship, who makes himself known personally. And to say that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to tell a story. It's the kind of cliff notes of the story. God describes himself as a storied God. That Abraham was this wandering nomad that God came to and made a relationship with. That he gave him these covenant promises and said, I will make you great. I will multiply your descendants. I'll give you a home And I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the peoples of of the earth. And then God renews that promise to Isaac, Abraham's son, and he renews it again to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And then Abraham's descendants are in Egypt, and and God doesn't seem to be there. And yet, God is. And, And we know that God is there, present to them, even if he's hidden, because they're growing. The promise that God made that they would become a nation, that is coming into effect. And so God here kind of reintroduces himself on the scene, and we're told that, that God remembered His covenant. Now what does it mean in biblical language to say that God remembers a covenant? It's not like us when we remember. We remember things that we were prone to forget. So it doesn't mean that God kind of had been kind of merrily tootling along, completely like Israel off of his mind, didn't think about Abraham and his promises, and it kind of suddenly encounters that post-it note on the fridge of like, oh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he's like, oh, that's right. My people are in Egypt. I, got it. I should do something about that. It doesn't mean that God forgot. It means that God now applies, that God is renewing, God is stepping into the reality of the relationship that he has promised and is true, even if it's under the surface. And now it's coming back, and God's bringing it to the forefront. And God makes himself known as the God who is in relationship, who is personal. We often identify ourselves and we're known as the relationships that we keep. So when I was a kid, I was often known as David and Monette's son, Now that I'm an adult, I'm still not known for myself. Now I'm kind of Adelaide's or Elliot's dad. And that's often the case that we're known by the company that we keep. We're known by the people that we relate to. And that's true of us as Christians. To be a Christian is, in a sense, to have God's name on you, to be known because of your relationship to God. But it also works the other way around. For God to put his name on you is to say that God makes himself known in relationship to us. And that's the surprising truth, that God chooses us to make himself known, to bear his name, to say, this is who I am. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Joshua. I'm the God of Stephen. I'm the God of Emily. That's who I am. That's how I'm known. And when you're in relationship with someone, you care about what happens to them. And so here, when God shows up, he calls out to Moses and he says, Moses, Moses. And that kind of repeating the name like that is a term of endearment. It's this kind of gentle entreaty, this way of speaking that shows tenderness. And in verse 7, God says of Israel, he says, they are my people. They belong to me. And when somebody we know is in trouble, like we naturally want to do something about it. And in fact, if you have a friend, and for whatever reason, something's going on with them, and you don't know about it, and you find out later, well, often your response is, oh, I wish I had known. Like if I had known what was happening, I could have helped, I could have done something. And that's what's happening here. God knows what is happening And so now, God's doing something. So God is above us, this holy, majestic, otherness God. And at the same time, he is among us, relating personally. And so when you put those two together, what do you get? Look at verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When you have a God above us and a God who is among us, what you get is a God who comes down. A God who comes down in order to act, in order to be involved, in order to roll up his sleeves and get down into it with us. Because if he's above us, it means he is sovereign, he is majestic, he is able to act. And if he is among us, it means that he's related, that he cares, that he wants to act. And so God, as the one who is able and willing, comes down to rescue his people. And this, in a sense, is the keynote of the entire story of Exodus. All of the rest of it is going to unpack this one verse That God is coming down, and when he comes down, he's going to bring his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, and deliver them into a homeland, into a land that he's promised that he will make them safe, where they will be able to flourish. And this, the Bible tells us, is a picture of what it means that God rescues us that God comes down and intervenes for us and saves us. Because this story, this coming down of God here at the bush is a pointer beyond itself to something even greater, that it's a shadow, it's a type of what is to come, which is when God comes down in Jesus to save us. So if God at the bush comes down as this angel, this visible, this true, real representation, but only for a moment, only in a fleeting way, in Jesus, God comes down decisively, that he is truly God that we're told that he is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Here is the truest, realist representation, and not for just a moment. In the incarnation, God takes on to himself a human body forever. Jesus, when he is raised from the dead, doesn't somehow become this kind of ephemeral spirit floating around. He is still genuinely human, Visible and real a true picture of who God is and not the one that we have to hide our eyes from that we can't get closer to uh, lest we be overwhelmed because Jesus says, come, touch my side, put your hand into the wound and feel the holes and know that I am real. That's God coming down. And when he comes down in Christ, there is his holiness, there is his godness poured out on sin. That at the cross where Jesus is crucified, all of the sin and its penalty is put upon him. The holiness of God, the righteous anger at everything that would destroy what God loves everything that would evilly twist and turn and distort and break and rebel against God, that is poured out there. God's holiness made real. Why? So that you and I, in our unholiness, could actually be known by God. That we could be drawn closer than having to stand at a distance but actually invited to stand at the foot of the cross. The only way that you and I can can relate to a holy God is that God comes and he accounts us holy, that he credits us with holiness and then begins to actually change us into holiness. And so that picture of the otherness of God at the bush is fulfilled in what Christ does at the cross. Fulfilled in such a way that God's name has a new dimension to it. That God in the Old Testament says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is to say, I'm the God of this covenant to rescue you, to keep my promises. And now we know God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Why is that? Like, why do Christians, why do we call God Father, Son, and Spirit and and describe him as a trinity? I mean, let's be honest, that is not like a marketing prize-winning kind of way to talk about God. It doesn't make sense to us. Like, the minute you think you have figured out the Trinity is probably the minute you have fallen into some ancient heresy about who God is. There is this mystery that he is one singular God and yet truly in three persons. So why? It's because it's the only way to make sense of the story. The only way to explain what happens in the gospel when God comes down at the cross is to say that God must be father, that he must be the father of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus himself must be truly God, and the spirit of Christ that we receive must truly be God as well. To say that God is father, son, and spirit is a shorthand way of saying he's the God of the gospel. He's the God who comes down to rescue us. And so we see even more truly the name of God, that it's personal, that it's relational. And we see that that this holy ground, that it grows. That in the moment there at the burning bush, there's this one particular small place in the entire earth that is holy ground. But now, holy ground spreads, it multiplies. That if you believe in Jesus, it means that Jesus' spirit his Holy Spirit lives in you. And as the good news of who Jesus is goes out, as people believe, it means holy ground grows. That as the gospel goes out through the world, there's holy ground in other places as well. And in some special way, this is holy ground. Not because of the artwork, not because of the building, but because you and I are here right now. And God is intensively present because his spirit brings us and we are here together. And so that's what makes this a thin place between heaven and earth is because God shows up and this is holy ground. And so the story of the gospel is the story of the burning bush that the God who is above us and the God who is among us comes down to rescue us. That he sees us in our pain and is not absent and is not impotent, but is able and willing to show up. But notice how he shows up. Look at verse 8. We're told God is going to do it. God says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. I will bring them up out of that land. God makes clear, look, I'm going to do it. So what do we make of verse 10? He says to Moses, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh, you to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And that's how God works. God says, I'm going to do it. I'll rescue the, I'll rescue the Israelites. Moses, you're going to do it. I'll bring them out. Moses, you'll bring them out. And those aren't in contradiction because this is the way that God works, that God works through those whom he calls, that God works through us. And so God worked through Moses and God works through Jesus to accomplish the rescue. And what that means for us is that God works in and through us in Christ That when he calls us into a relationship with himself, he calls us into this space that he will work through us. So part of the question that when we are in a hard place and we're asking, God, do do you see? Does anybody see? One of the ways that God answers is that when we can say, yes, I see. I see that you're hurting and I want to be here with you. That's God saying, I have come down to rescue. That God has appointed and called us to be in that space through whom he works. And so one of the ways for us to live these verses out is to ask ourselves, do we see? Do we have our eyes open? Are we asking God, God, help me to see the people around me. Help me to see where there is hurt, where you might say to me, go, go. And be there with them. That's both our hope and our call. That the God who is above you, who is holy, who is majestic, who is truly God, is at the same time the God among us, present, taking his name and putting it on us and putting our name on him, so that he comes down to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, we pray and we say, Lord, come down. Would you leap down afresh by your spirit on us to bring home to us the beautiful truth that you have come down in Christ and you are truly here. Help us to to see the grandeur of your holiness, to see the intimacy of your presence at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray even now that as we come to this table that points us to the story of our rescue, that you would spiritually be present to feed us by faith.